Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Welcome to Switched on Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. Charlie, I have some Billboard chart trivia for you. You ready? Okay. Yeah. Here's the question. Who was the oldest artist to ever hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100? Mm. Okay, I'm talking about the oldest artist when they recorded the song and that song then went to number one. Who is that? Oof. I'm first of all interested in what even that age range is. I'm guessing it's in the like the 50s to 60s range, potentially. I'll, I'll give you a hint. The second oldest artist is Cher with her song Believe. Ooh, yeah. She was 53 when that was recorded. Right, right. Okay. So the number one oldest artist is going to be older than that. Okay. I'm going to throw out Frank Sinatra. That's a great guess. And you're warm, but that's not quite right. This artist hit number one in 1964, knocking the Beatles off the charts. Okay. The young, the young hot group of the (laughs) sixties. And they did it with this song. Okay. We got some banjo. No, you're a banjo player. Hello, Dollar. This is Louis Dollar. Oh, Louis Armstrong. Yes, you got it immediately, Charlie. Louis Armstrong. But I have to correct you, okay? Not Louis. Common misperception. Really? Oh. Yes. I mean, you hear him say it at the very beginning of this song, actually. He prefers his name to be pronounced Louis. This is Louis. Oh, (laughs) I'm an idiot. (laughs) You're not alone. Everyone calls him Louis Armstrong, except... Louis Armstrong, who called himself <laughs> Louis. So that's our first our, our first lesson of this episode. Yeah. Setting the record. Uh, yeah, okay. And how old was he? He was 62 years young. Oh, this is great. So I still have like, <laughs> like 25 <laughs> to years to get a number one hit on the Hot 100. This is, this is good to know. Okay. Yeah, no, the, the window has not closed. Great. Okay, so this is kind of a, a cool anniversary, I think. It's been 60 years since Armstrong recorded this number one hit, Hello, Dolly. Hmm. And it's a hundred years since Armstrong made his first ever recordings. That was back in 1923. Wow. So I thought the centennial year might be the perfect time to talk about the sound and the legacy of this artist who has shaped the sound of popular music in profound ways. This is a nice little detour to go down. I like this. Okay, tell me about Louis Armstrong. First of all, great pronunciation. Love, love to hear Thank that. You. I'm working on it. And secondly, I don't know what what your perception of Armstrong is. I, I could I could talk about my own uh, prior to to researching and learning more about him. I, I thought of him as as kind of a comic figure, kind of larger than life, someone to impersonate, someone whose songs like "What a Wonderful World." are 
popular but almost so commonplace that they've kind of lost some of their edge, I think. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yeah, definitely that. N- nearly cliche. What I've since learned about Armstrong repudiates that reputation. He was, in fact, a radical figure, someone who recreated the very formula of popular music Hmm. and someone who every single pop singer in 2023 is indebted to whether they know it or not. You're going to have to tie some threads together for me to get from uh, 1923 to uh, 2023. Well, then let's start unspooling those threads at the very beginning of Armstrong's career. Okay. What I propose we do is spend the first half of the episode tracking Armstrong's career and hearing how he developed his iconic sound. Hmm. And in the second half, consider how this sound shaped every popular musician who followed him. Okay. My bold claim, as as you say. Yeah, yeah. And to do that, I think we have to go back to the very beginning. We have to go to New Orleans, where Armstrong was born in 1901 and where he learned to play the cornet, a type of trumpet, when he was sent at the age of 12 to the Colored Waif's home for boys. By the time he was 17, Armstrong had become one of the most sought-after trumpet players in the city, playing on riverboats up and down the Mississippi River. And his talent took him from New Orleans up to Chicago and then to New York City in 1924, where he recorded this solo on the song Sugarfoot Stomp. Great evidence for why everybody wants to be the trumpeter. You get to lead the whole orchestra. Totally. The trumpet was the definitive instrument of jazz in the 1920s when this recording was made. Like, if you thought of hot music, you thought of the trumpet. And and, and that had a lot to do with Armstrong himself. When you listen to this recording, you're hearing so many hallmarks of New Orleans jazz. It's bluesy. It's got this rhythmic drive. But it has something else that was special about Armstrong. The solo really tells a story. It has a vocal quality. Now, Armstrong didn't come up with this himself. He actually modeled his sound after his first mentor, the legendary New Orleans trumpeter, Joe King Oliver. And I'll illustrate this for you, Charlie, because that solo we just heard from Louis Armstrong, here's how it starts. And here's a solo from his mentor, King Oliver. (laughs) Right. It has that same opening, long, bendy note. Repeat it and then kind of go. And it makes you realize that obviously jazz is an improvised form, but it leans on a bunch of established uh, licks and melodies and things that you've practiced and memorized. We're hearing Armstrong playing New Orleans jazz. I mean, literally, he's like playing his mentor solo note for note. Yeah. But that's not why we're interested in Armstrong. Ultimately, it's it's because what how he takes that musical language and develops it. You can hear this when he moves to New York City. 
1924, he gets hired by the biggest band in town, the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra. And when he arrives, these sophisticated New York musicians look at him a little askance. They're like, who's this country boy coming into our high-toned New York City orchestra? And he doesn't make the best impression. In fact, shortly after his arrival, the band is reading a chart and they get to a section marked PP for volume. So that means like pianissimo, like very quiet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when they get to that section, the whole band gets really quiet, except Armstrong, who just <laughs> blares his trumpet and plays it as loud as he can. And Henderson, the leader, stopped. Whoa, 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 stop. What's going on? Don't you know how to read music? And, and Armstrong goes, yeah, yeah, I know how to re read music. PP. That, that stands for pound plenty, <laughs> which was his way of saying, you know, play as loud as you yeah, can. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, my God, this, this kid. But. It turned out that Armstrong would become the most influential member of that band, and he would change the way the whole orchestra played because he brought this bluesy, driving New Orleans sound to the group. Hmm. So Armstrong takes the New York music scene by storm, mm -hmm. but it's what happens next that really cements his stardom, makes him the biggest jazz artist and, and arguably the biggest pop artists of the 1920s. Okay. In 1925, he leaves New York for Chicago. Ooh. And in Chicago, he leads his own band for the first time. And he does so with the assistance of his second wife, an outstanding musician in her own right, someone named Lil Hardin. Armstrong and Hardin start a group called the Hot Five and make a series of recordings in the 1920s that flip the script of what jazz and pop music might sound like. Let's listen to Armstrong's solo on the song Potato Head Blues to hear him develop a new melodic language. Wow, I'm not a jazz scholar like yourself, but this feels like almost proto-bebop, where it's become much more syncopated, it's much more staccato, we're jumping all around these scales, it's swirling all around your head, it doesn't have these long kind of bends, it's just like, you can't, you don't know where what's going to happen. No, I, I love that analysis, Charlie. And this is probably one of the most famous solos in jazz history, because I think it takes that bluesiness and that rhythmic drive that we heard him bring from his upbringing in New Orleans. And it gives it that sort of rhythmic and harmonic sophistication that you were just talking about. Hmm. This solo and others that he recorded in the mid-1920s set a new template for, for jazz musicians. They impelled them to tell a story the same way Armstrong does. And they raised Armstrong to the level of, of something like a god in music. The, the playing is getting virtuosic here, it feels. There's a technical proficiency that comes out in a recording like West End Blues from 1928, which begins with an unaccompanied Armstrong trumpet cadenza. I mean, if you were listening to that on your Victrola in 1928, you would have just been blown away. That that was unlike anything you'd ever heard coming out of a 78 RPM shellac record before. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just his trumpet playing, Charlie, though that was impressive. He actually brags about it a little bit on a recording called Big Butter and Eggman. Great titles. Oh, I 
Did a big personality. I love that. He sings, if it's necessary, I'll even hit high C. <laughs> That's both a kind of romantic or quasi-sexual gesture. <laughs> and it's and it's a little bit of bragging. Like, I'm so good at the trumpet, I can reach yeah. these notes yeah. that no one else can. Right, right. That's so funny. But this recording also tunes us into another key aspect of Armstrong's sound, which is he's not just a trumpeter, he's a vocalist yeah, as well. Right. And during this period in Chicago, he also records his first vocal tracks, including one where he introduces a style that would become incredibly influential called scat singing. Huh. What's scat singing, Charlie? Uh, water, blah, 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 something I can't do. Something I should never do. I'll never do again. I'm sorry. I know. And that was me because I only asked you that because I knew you would produce something um, deeply embarrassing. As embarrassing as that. So so thank, so thank you for, for rising to the occasion. You're welcome. It's an earned skill is what it is that I do not have. Armstrong created his own legend around the development of scat singing. He said he was recording a song called Heebie Jeebies and he dropped the lyric sheet on the floor and he had to scramble to make up these nonsense syllables on the spot. That's probably not true, but nonetheless, the result was undeniable. His scat singing is kind of like the hybrid between his actual singing and his trumpet playing. You get the two of them, you get him doing the scat thing though i doubt he's gonna hit a high c on that voice just on the trumpet no no high c's but but i, I like your analysis chuck it, it it does retain the same rhythmic drive and bluesiness of his trumpet playing but now it's got this added dimension of the beep bop boop bop and that i mean that's still like certainly every jazz singer sings scat to some degree yeah but this is something you hear constantly in pop music as well what scat singing i mean since the scat man I'm a scat man. Charlie, do I need to remind you of Robert Plant's scatting at the end of Led Zeppelin's What Is and What Never Should Be? I hadn't thought of it. Not bad. Not bad. Okay. I didn't realize that scat singing extended into the world of, of 60s and 70s rock. I'll be curious if we can draw a more contemporary connection, but maybe the place that we hear scat singing in popular music is more like the vocal ad-libs that happen in the final chorus, the places of over-the-top musical expression that, that feel maybe tied both to scat singing as well as sort of uh, the spontaneous improvisation of, of, of musical call-outs in, in a gospel choir. Okay, how about Harry Styles with music for a sushi restaurant? No. Excuse me, green tea, music for a sushi restaurant. Okay, okay, you've proven your point. Scooby dooby doop bow. Scat is still alive. For Armstrong's wife and collaborator, Lil Hardin. This moment in Heebie Jeebies when Armstrong started scatting was so effective because it represented his effervescent, spontaneous personality. No, it was always so full of fun. You never knew what he was going to do. Mm -hmm. He had a way of uh, saying funny things. He had two, three words that he had made up 
himself and he used to say, well, uh, two of them was born and nibble <laughs> <laughs> and prohibit seniority. <laughs> so I doubt if he dropped the music. He just felt like not saying the real words, just saying something else. That's really what I think happened. That was an interview from much later in her life, but I love how she shines light on Armstrong's personality, you know, making up words, prohibit tenuity. <laughs> I mean, he's, he clearly just had this, such an active mind and such a creative spirit. Mm. And you can hear that when he scats. Yeah. From the release of Heebie Jeebies in 1926, Armstrong's arc just continues to ascend. He moves back to New York, but this time he's not part of any orchestra. He's a solo star in his own right, and he's the featured soloist in a Broadway show called Hot Chocolates, which opened in 1929 and had as its centerpiece Armstrong's performance of the song Ain't Misbehavin'. Throwing in a little quotation of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue during that trumpet solo. Yeah. Oh, that's great. This is a musician at the top of his game. But he's not just singing pop hits. He's singing some songs that have a more trenchant message, hmm. a message about the frayed state of race relations in Jim Crow America. Songs like Black and Blue, which are not the kind of fluffy pop songs that we've heard from him so far, but cut right to the core of his experience as a black man in America. I'm white inside, but that don't help my case. I can't hide. What is it, my I'm white inside, but that don't help my case. I can't hide what's in my face. You don't encounter a lot of songs in the 1920s with that kind of direct confrontation of racial identity. How hmm. will it end? Ain't got a friend. My only sin is in my skin. What did I do to be so black and blue? From the heights of Broadway showbiz in New York, where, where's left to go, Charlie? He, he's he's conquered New Orleans, Chicago, New York. Where, where are you going to go next at this point? Hollywood. Movies. Hollywood. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he moves out to Hollywood, California. He stars in movies. He forms his own orchestra for the first time. And he really cements his case for being the star performer of this generation. Remember earlier we heard him bragging about hitting high C's on his trumpet? Yeah. Check out what he does in the 1930s in his recording of Swing That Music. I want to count the high C's that he hits at the end of this song. Great. Okay. Okay, here we go, Chuck. 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty-three, one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty, forty-one. Oh, and he goes up. <laughs> and then he ends with a high F. So 41, actually 42, because I didn't count the very first one. 42 high C's at the end of that recording. That is someone who has complete command and control of his instrument, mm. who knows how to excite an audience, yeah. and who is being celebrated for being the most visionary trumpeter and vocalist of the 20s and 30s. He's flexing. It is a flex, as the kids would say. Hello, fellow kids. And from here, Armstrong soars, right? He's, he's conquered all the major cities in the U.S., and now he starts touring the world. He actually becomes an ambassador for the U.S. State Department, one of the few artists to pierce the Iron Curtain later in the 1950s. He travels to Africa and performs in Zimbabwe. He travels to Egypt and performs in front of the pyramids. This is a global superstar, someone who has come a long way from his roots in the colored waifs home for boys in New Orleans, mm. where he first learned how to play the trumpet. Pretty incredible story. Globetrotting trumpeter, singer, scatter, movie star, Broadway. Knocking the Beatles off the charts yeah. <laughs> in 1964. All right. But uh, Charlie, I promise you even more, right? I promise you someone who had changed the sound of popular music forever. Let's see if I can back that up when we come back after a quick break. More than just scatting. Promise? Pinky swear. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Charles. I think what makes Armstrong so important in the history of pop music is the quality that his collaborator, Lil Hardin, talked about in that audio clip I played in the first half. This The sense that you are hearing his personality on record whenever you listen to him, that you're not just hearing someone who is performing the notes on the page, right. but you're hearing someone who is bringing their voice, their interpretation, their individuality to a song. That's something we might take as a given now in pop music, mm. but it wasn't always the case. Armstrong broke that mold and created that template. 
I instantly, of course, recognize his voice when I heard it. But he's one of those instrumentalists that you can quickly point out, oh, that's Louis Armstrong playing the trumpet. And that's you know, as a guitar player, like that's that's the thing every guitar player is going for. Like within three notes, you know exactly who you're hearing. And he does that. I want to illustrate this quality by comparing two recordings of the same song. Okay. The first is by iconic American singer Bing Crosby. Here's his recording of the song Dinah from 1932. And when we listen to this, Charles, I want you to focus on how eloquently and perfectly Bing enunciates each of the words of this song. Dinah, is there anyone finer in the state of Carolina? If there is and you know her, now, here's Armstrong's recording of the same song made one year later in 1933. Charlie, how many of the words does Armstrong capture in his performance? Oh, Dinah. <laughs> Anyone find a that can roll not convinced he hasn't <laughs> completely forgotten the words, but from the get-go, the way that he says Dinah, it's yeah. unmistakable. This is fascinating to me because you listen to the second stanza of this song, Armstrong only sings one word, basically, <laughs> Dinah Lee. Yeah. He just goes, Dinah, 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 Dinah Lee. And and I imagine for some people, you know, they're buying this record and they're like, wait, what? Like, what is happening here? I paid for this song and I'm only getting like, you know, a quarter of the lyrics. Fragments. Yeah, yeah. But that's exactly what Armstrong's appeal was. It, you didn't pick up an Armstrong record to get that perfect Bing Crosby delivery of the song. You picked up a record to hear Armstrong's version. Mm. And Charlie, you speculated, you know, maybe Armstrong kind of forgot the yeah, lyrics yeah. at this point. Let me play you a recording from 1930 called I'm a Ding Dong Daddy from Dumas. <laughs> Great title, incidentally. And check out what happens. I'm a Ding Dong Daddy from Dumas and Artisan Dumas style. I'm being cut by the bump on us. Oh, you ought to see me start. Oh, he was, I was, oh, boop. And I done forgot the words. Ding dong, bad bump, too bad. Isn't there that apocryphal story of Miles Davis telling Herbie Hancock that there's no mistakes, there's just an opportunity to improvise? That's not an apocryphal story. That's a, that's an absolutely true story, true story. that you just oh, okay. And we hear that in this. He literally says, I'm a ding-dong daddy from Dumas, and I don't forgot the words. He did it with style. And again, this is so fascinating to me because... This totally defies all the logic of popular music, where, again, you're supposed to, if, if you're buying an, an album, you're expecting to hear a song you know. Mm -hmm. And and here he's, like, doing the opposite. Say, oh, I don't even know the words. Sorry. <laughs> and not only do people not care, they're eating it up. Because what's less important is the integrity of the song than the integrity of Armstrong's performance and him being true to himself mm -hmm. and him communicating his spontaneity and his personality. Right. I feel like there's such a trope of contemporary records where they'll fly in some random laughter that happened to be recorded in the studio and drop it in the track uh, to make it feel like it's uh, not as polished as it really is. They're trying to recreate that intimacy. Yeah. And, and that desire, I think you can trace back to these Armstrong records from the 20s and 30s mm. because they crack this new code 
of pop music, where it's not about a perfect, flawless performance. It's about the performance with the most emotion and the most direct honesty. And that's what pop singers today are striving for. And certainly the performance of identity, that this is about Louis Armstrong and how he does it. And that's what pop stars do today as well. It's all about buying into their persona. Okay, interesting. So you're saying you're not just buying a record now to hear someone interpret a song. You're hearing them bring their own perspective to it, right? Their unique take that they can offer. Well, isn't this one of those Pandora's box of pop music where we all know and acknowledge that there's producers and songwriters and suits behind every big song, and yet we want to believe it is just the raw, unbridled emotion of the singer and their performance, and that actually they're doing it right on the spot, and that's exactly how they're feeling, and they're writing it (laughs) extemporaneously. Right. That tension that's always there. Which brings us back to that moment, Armstrong recording heebie-jeebies, and he says, oh, I I dropped the lyrics, and I had to make up these right. scat syllables on the spot. We know that's not true, but right. we, maybe we want to believe right. it because yeah, exactly. it creates that extra layer of authenticity. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's my case, Charlie, for how Louis Armstrong invented the modern pop star as we know it. But maybe I can offer some more evidence, and we can do that by listening to one final song and reflect on its incredible longevity. It's What a Wonderful World, recorded in 1967. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Even if Armstrong hadn't made all these revolutions that we've just been talking about, I feel like this song alone would earn him a place in the pop pantheon. It has been used in so many films, commercials. Mm -hmm. It's what I sing to my son before bed. Oh, that's so sweet. And it's been reworked by a surprising number of artists. Check out Joey Ramone's version of What a Wonderful World. I see the blue The world is wonderful and it contains multitudes, including any kind of cover you could possibly imagine of What a Wonderful World. Even Ghostface Killa has taken a stab at this classic. I see the blunts for me and you, and I say to myself, what a Okay, so there's Ghostface Killa and Raekwon turning this Armstrong classic into an ode to cannabis. But the version of the song I want to end with, Charlie, is from 2019, 52 years after the original recording. It's by John Batiste, a pianist and singer who, like Armstrong, hails from New Orleans. And his performance of What a Wonderful World brings out a certain darkness that might be latent in the song that a lot of other performers don't really try to capture and I think to myself what a wonderful world
And I think in doing so, he's really paying homage to Armstrong himself, this multidimensional performer who had so many aspects to his playing and to his career and whose music continues to resonate for artists and listeners a hundred years after he first put his sound on record. This is illuminating for me. I feel like next time I hear really any pop song, especially all of the ad-libs at the end, I'm going to be thinking Louis Armstrong and his legacy. Switched on Pop is produced by Rihanna Cruz. Brandon McFarland is our engineer. Art Chung edits the show. Abby Barr does community management. Iris Gottlieb creates our incredible illustrations. And Nishat Kurwa is our executive producer. We're a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Tell us your favorite Louis Armstrong song at Switched on Pop on Instagram and Twitter. We'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. And until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.